0: Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co.
1: Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ali is here to help. Ali invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness more than just melatonin ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off sleep is on the way at ollie.com that's o-l-l-y.com this
0: episode is brought to you by wondersweet from bluehost.com website creation is hard
2: And of course, you have this great rise since 2000 uh, of uh, self-published books. And books that, to all intents and purposes, should not be self-published because they're not good enough to be published.
3: That was Andrew Roberts on changes to the world of history publishing during the 21st century.
4: Books are going to be more beautiful because they have to be in order to confront the digital threat so that it, books will become have to be desirable as objects for coffee tables and for shelves as much as anything else.
5: So you're confident about the continued existence of the book?
4: Yes, very much so, but only as as an object of desire in itself.
3: It speaks to the 16th century historian. (laughs) (laughs) And that was Susanna Lipscomb, David Reynolds and Tom Holland on what the future may hold for history books. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our fourth podcast of May 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. A few days ago, we published the 200th issue of the magazine, To mark the occasion, we commissioned a number of special articles, including a piece where we gathered four leading historians to discuss the changes in history book publishing since we launched back in May 2000. In this week's podcast, you'll get to hear some of that discussion. Our four experts are all leading figures in popular history. Andrew Roberts is a historian and author specialising in modern history. His books include a 2014 biography of Napoleon and a 2009 account of the Second World War. Susanna Lipscomb is Head of History at New College of the Humanities. Her main focus is on the 16th century, and her most recent book is The King is Dead, the last will and testament of Henry VIII. Tom Holland is a historian and author who has written widely on ancient and medieval history, notably two books on ancient Rome entitled Rubicon and Dynasty. Finally, David Reynolds is Professor of International History at Christ College, Cambridge. He has written a number of books about 20th century international history. Most recently, The Long Shadow, The Great War and The 20th Century. Putting the questions to these experts is our reviews editor, Matt Elton. He began by asking the panel how they got involved in history. And the first voice you will hear will be Andrew's, followed by Tom, Susanna, and David.
2: Um, I read uh, history at university, and then went into the city, which everybody in my um, generation was doing. My cohort at Cambridge was doing, and after two years in the city, I realised that I was functionally illiterate, um, and uh, and and therefore. My tail was in the crank. Nobody was actually churning it round yet, but I knew at some stage somebody else was going to spot the fact that I was functioning in neurotic. And so I decided to leave. And there was literally nothing else I felt that I could do um, of any use um, to myself rather than the society, I hasten to add, uh, apart from try to write a history book. And um, so I wrote a biography of Lord Halifax rather obscure character who was only chosen because nobody else had written a major book about him. But it was a very good book. Thank you very much yeah, David awesome. that's extremely generous of you. In 1971, the last biography of Halifax came out and I wrote mine in 1992. And um and uh was very fortunate with reviews from people um mm. <laughs> uh, well anyway, but, uh, okay. I was pleased to pleased to um uh, and you know felt felt great about that and so decided i was going to carry Could on but you really experience. mind the documents
5: and you know i think you're an example of, of i think of many people that um although we academics like to think that it helps to have a phd to write serious history you don't need it actually i mean you need certain kinds of skills but um that's part of why i think you know ours is a very democratic um uh, subject you know anybody almost anybody can do it um, it's a case of almost learning on the job. I think I proved that absolutely merit. anybody have can do merit. It. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. I wouldn't have necessarily had the self confidence to have done it had I not read history no. at university. But um, but again, there are loads of people who who don't who can also write fantastically good history books. So uh, I don't think mine was an unusual case particularly. But it was it was uh, definitely I, I didn't do it because from the age of six I wanted to be a historian. I did it because it was the only thing that I thought I'd be able to do well.
5: How about you Tom? I,
6: I probably had the most idiosyncratic route to becoming a historian because I really did want to be a historian when I was six. I, I can never remember a time where I didn't think that the past was more fascinating than the present and as a very young child I would go up the back of lane behind our house and wish that the farm animals were dinosaurs and I then sort of progressed seamlessly to wishing that You know, the multi-storey car park was a Roman villa or the shopping (laughs) centre was a castle. Um, So all the way through my childhood and into um, my teenage years, history was an absolutely vivid passion. But then as it was nearing uh, choice of what to do at university, I got gripped by literature. So I ended up doing that instead. Um, And did a doctorate on the relationship of Lord Byron to ancient Greek poetry. And while I was doing that... Um, Interview with the Vampire came out, which is, I think, I'm right in saying, the only film in which Tom Cruise has blonde hair. He played a sort of vampire telling his story. And I thought, actually, Byron would make a perfect vampire. So I wrote Byron's story with the presumption that he was a vampire, and it did sort of surprisingly well. And I got booked in to write three more vampire books with historical settings, um, and What was it called? Your it was called uh, The Vampire with a Y, after Dr. Polidori's yes, yes, um, absolutely. ghost yeah. story. Yeah.
5: Um, so which, you were vamping up history, really.
6: Yes, and and, and the final... I, so I did one set in um, 1888, you know, the year of Jack the Ripper, but also against the backdrop of um, Dorian Gray and Sherlock Holmes and all that sort of incredible wash of popular figures. Then I did one set against the backdrop of the English Commonwealth, And the restoration. And the final one I did was um, it was kind of uh, an Arabian Nights style tale set in Egypt, um, with with an enclosing tale which was the story of Howard Carter finding Tutankhamen. Then the an inner one which was the story of the Fatimid tenth century caliph Al Hakim. Then the innermost core was the story of Akhenaten and Tutankhamen. And the research that I put in to demonstrate conclusively that Akhenaten had been a vampire was staggering. (laughs) And I thought the, 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 the world of Egyptology is going to be on fire with the fruits of my research. But because it was a vampire book, nobody cared. And what I had discovered very vividly doing that was that I was vastly more interested in the history than the fiction, and I frankly thought that Including vampirism into the story of Akhenaten, possibly the first monotheist, made it a good deal less interesting, actually. <laughs> so I then decided that I wanted to write an account of the period of history that had always most gripped me, which was the story of the fall of the Roman Republic. And I got a commission to write that. And I was worried when I began that um, although people would have an interest in Caesar's invasion of Britain because they'd all have done that at primary school and in Gaul because of Asterix, how was I going to make um you know the Imperial Republic's engagement in the Middle East interesting? And then that particular problem was solved with 9 eleven. Um and thanks to um very sort of generous advance praise from people like Andrew, who will always be in my debt as a result of that, the book did sufficiently well that I then found myself on a whole new course.
5: Cool. But it actually made a difference, clearly, that you had done literature first. Absolutely. you approached it in, yes, in a more imaginative in a more imaginative way. But,
6: but also because of the particular periods that I was interested in. So my particular in, per, periods were, were ancient and early medieval. And those are periods where what we, I think, erroneously call primary sources are often already shaped mm-hmm. as literature. Yes. So if you're writing about... Uh, the Persian invasion of Greece, your source is Herodotus, who is simultaneously a quarry of information to be mined, but also a great literary artist. And the same is true for you know, Tacitus and Imperial Rome, or Gregory of in early France. Yeah. So I, I think that um, I, I've tried to write books that are true to these foundational sources, both as history and as literature. Hmm. That's
2: lovely.
0: How does that compare to your experience?
4: Well, my story has some similarities, although no vampire uh, infection <laughs> in the background. You um, would say that, though, you? <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't as good as Tom, so I don't want to emphasize that. Um, so I loved history at school, thought it was the obvious thing to do at university, although, interestingly, I think for a lot of historians, the temptation towards literature is always great. Um, it's the obvious thing to do at university. Uh, I didn't have any ambitions, really, to, to do further study in history, I wanted to work in international development. I spent most of my um, years at university going to India whenever possible and learning Hindi and and completely focused on a different course. Mm. Um, But in my last year, I had a one to one tutorial with Robin Briggs. I was writing a. At the time, um, they were experimenting Mm. with. Um, doing comparative history, so I was looking at religious violence in sixteenth century sixteenth century France between uh, mm. obviously Catholics and Protestants, and nineteenth twentieth century India, my constant focus of attention yeah. between mm. Hindus and Muslims, and so I was comparing these periods and went to meet Robin to talk over and it had the most intellectually stimulating hour of my life up until that point. So I came out thinking, <laughs> um, and I had very good tutors, but so this is mm. this is quite something. Came out thinking. Well, if I could do a doctorate with him. But I was still very much sort of moving along the international development route. So I came out and tried to do that for about six months and got... Uh, well, essentially, I decided what I wanted to do was something that was best done by Indigenous people. So I, I kind of was sat there thinking halfway through the year after I'd finished my degree, what am I going to do? And this returned to me. And so I applied to... I was teaching history in a school by this point, And I t- applied to, to do a master's and doctorate back at Oxford uh, with Robin. And so I was working on 16th Century France, um, uh, which I'm just returning to now, having got sidelined for a while. Um, so uh, I was working on 16th Century France. My formation is very much as a cultural and social historian. Um, Robin Briggs, for example, is a great mm-hmm. expert on witchcraft. Linda yeah. Roper was another oh, yeah. advisor to me. Yeah. Um, but my undergraduate tutor was Susan Brigdon, which becomes relevant going on. So then, um, then, as I was just finishing up or thought I was finishing up, my doctorate, I um, saw a job at Hampton Court as a research curator. mm. Um, And this was through something called a knowledge transfer partnership with Kingston University. So it's sort of part funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Sounds very Doctor Who, a knowledge transfer. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And and it was this amazing scheme. So what I was doing for three years was working towards creating a new visitor experience, a new exhibition at Hampton Court to mark the 500th anniversary of Henry VIII succession and could organise a big international conference mm. and various other things. And it was in preparing for that, working on Henry VIII, so having skipped over the channel and gone back in time, because I was working on the late 16th century, not a long way mm. back in time, But and then also completely changing the level of society I was looking at. I was previously looking at very ordinary people in 16th century France mm. um, under the Calvinists in the south of France, and I started looking at the court Um, And somebody asked me to do, doing all these research documents for for preparing for exhibitions, and someone said, oh, what's the 10 most important things, events that happened in Henry VIII's life? And I provided a list and and then realised that most of them happened in one year. And I thought, well, what would that be like to live through? And so in the end, I ended up writing a book about that year, which was 1536, and thinking that it was pivotal in, in understanding Henry VIII because... He'd previously been studied so much thematically that actually this yes. idea that he had this series of losses and betrayals and disappointments that changed him um, was fundamental. And it's, so, it, it's quite interesting, because up until that point, to say that he changed was even was kind of controversial in itself, mm. rather than him. or he was always a tyrant from the very beginning. And I don't think, I mean, the evidence suggests that he really wasn't. So um, that was the first, and then, you know, I've done a lot of Henry Eighth related things since. The rest is history, as it were. <laughs>
5: yeah. How about you, David? Well, I was probably a sixer like uh, like Tom in that I've always, uh, always been interested in history. And um, in fact, one of my earliest memories, my mother came from Lancashire and uh, she married a Southerner, but she loved to come. We lived in Kent and she loved to come up to London for state occasions. That was her sense of history. And one of my earliest memories is standing just round the corner from uh, from where we are now on the Mall uh, when Charles de Gaulle came for his first state visit since he had in fact, since he had been here during the war in Carlton House Gardens, um, and he rode up the Mall in an open carriage with the Queen, and uh, uh, even I understood that was a really important moment. So I cheered, cheered widely. How old were then? I was about six or so, something like that. Uh, so, you know, the way kids do if they think something's important. Uh, I cheered so wildly that he turned and looked at me, and, yeah. wow. You know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but So that was all rather fun. But... Uh, in a sense, doing history was a sort of fate that was waiting for me, I think. I just loved it. I always did. But for me, the um, the really life-changing experience was that was actually not at university, but afterwards. I At, at Cambridge, I was an early modernist. I think I, I did one essay on the 20th century the whole mm-hmm. time I was there. I worked on 16th and 17th century Britain. Europe, intellectual history. I did lots of political thought and it's all wonderful. I had a chance to go to for a year to the United States on a, a fellowship to Harvard um, and That was fascinating in itself, but the most fascinating part was actually getting a Greyhound bus pass in the summer and You know just having a backpack and a t-shirt and jeans and going all over the United States. So Staying, was that? That was 70, I'll get to that, 73, it was summer of 74 and I went about 10,000 miles around America. I'd studied some American history, and I was fascinated, but I did more at Harvard. Um, But I was staying with families of of people I'd met during the year. And so I got to places nobody goes to. I always tell to my students, now, don't fly across America. Drive if you can, or if you're too young for the rental, you take a bus. So it's, you know, obscure places, Carbondale, Illinois, uh, Omaha, Nebraska, Wenatchee, Washington, all these kinds of things. And I ended up serendipitously... Uh, in Washington DC, the morning Nixon resigned, and I stood outside the White House on the, the lawn, Lafayette Square, in the days when you're still allowed to do that, and I wasn't cheering them, but, but you're you know, flashman, I, aren't you? I heard, him, I heard, I heard, you know, him say, well, you know, my mother was a saint and all this kind of thing. It was just incredible. So, and that actually really changed my perspective on what I wanted to do. I actually took two years between undergraduate. And starting a PhD, this is, you know, in the prehistoric days when one didn't need a master's to do a PhD. And I eventually decided I would do a PhD, but only if it was about recent history and was about things that kind of related to the world we live in now. And the thing that got me fascinated was the differences between two countries, Britain and America, who were who had the, the, common, the common language, were superficially similar in many ways, but in so many other ways were fundamentally different. And that's really, in a sense, what I wrote my first book about, which was uh, my thesis about, which was relations between Britain and America between 1937 and and 1941, which is how I came to know about Lord Halifax, uh, Andrew's friend. a book that I mm-hmm. used, uh, to call Lord Halifax. Yeah. So, the mutual admiration <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. but uh, but that was as much a cultural history as it was a, a sort of political history, because I was fascinated by these cultural differences that underlay the reactions of Americans to Brits and vice versa, and so that's really that was how I got into the whole thing. And since then, I've always been a 20th century historian, though I've moved around a lot. I've done transatlantic, but I'm interested in Europe and uh, British history and, and so on. Um, but I'm interested fundamentally in exposing the ways in which our present needs to be understood in the light of history. Um, But because I was an early modernist at the beginning, I always say to students, look, you know, history isn't just the last 20 years. We need a big sweep. We need a big sense of what history is about. And that's something I feel sometimes we don't get with many students now. They've come through a modular approach mm. to, to history at schools. They're a little globbit here, a little globbit there. And the idea of thinking, you know, big sweeping picture stuff, the kind of outlines papers that we, we still mm. do in Cambridge, that's kind of missing, and I, I'm sorry about that.
6: I always, I always love talking to um, historians like David who focus on recent history, because that then serves as the reminder that that's what Thucydides yes. was doing, Polybius, that... They believed in ancient times as well you could only write history about people that you could go and interview mm. within living memory. Yeah. And to transplant yourself back in that far time and imagine that for them it was recent history, that's the key.
5: Yeah. Yes, the past was once present and yes. that's always important. The future
0: was
6: unknown. Unknown, no. yeah.
5: yeah.
0: That's an interesting point you just raised. I mean, do you think there's any challenges that history and history writing faces in 2016? Uh, particularly that you think of perhaps new trends or things that have been going on for a while? One
2: that, one that I um, have noticed a bit more of, but luckily it hasn't been... Back in 2000, I'd have thought it would have been a much bigger thing, and it fortunately isn't, uh, is what I call out-of-the-darkness looms history, where the... Um, the carriage is going along and the writer, so the historian says, and out of the darkness loomed this sort of yeah. thing. And you think, okay, now I want to know, how do you know it was dark at that particular time? What um, what was the weather like? If you're going to tell us it was this, I want to know why you believe that. And I don't want maybes, I don't want perhapses, I don't want too much sort of invented part of, uh, of history. And I rather feared back in 2000 that the way that history was moving was towards a, uh, a long more sort of imagined docudrama type type of history, which actually I don't think has happened. Good history books now are still based on on identifiable um, facts from the past. I have noticed that even in academic works, there is an increasing use of the phrase, it might be argued that. Yes, yes, no, exactly. <laughs> which then all kinds speculation. Yeah, as soon as anybody uh, reads that. The problem then, is that, of course, uh, the further back in time you yeah. go, often... Um, they're more dependent on that kind of formulation. Yes, well, one understands are. that in a history um, of biogra- biography of Cleopatra, also, but one shouldn't be allowed it in a biography of De Gaulle to the same extent, at least, mm-hmm. strikes me. So that's one one thing. Um, th- then there are the other aspects that you'd expect. There is much more women's history. There is much more uh, black history. There are mu- you know, It's it's a much more um, uh, diverse um set of uh, of books that are being published which is a good thing however at the same time there strikes me as being a um uh when david was talking about about large overarching themes there seems to be less of that you you don't people are, do tend to concentrate on if they're writing about a um a specific subject they seem to be slightly smaller subjects than they were i don't know about t- the year 2000, but in the sort of 1980s and 90s, you would be able to buy a really good book on an entire decade or an entire war or something like that. More and more, it seems to be people um, writing about smaller and smaller themes. You know, there are good things to be said about that, but also bad things. But
5: well, I think there are challenges to to writing about big themes, and it's it's sometimes easier to do, or it's more attractive to do a kind of micro history, uh, either at the top or uh, at the bottom. Um, on the other hand, I think there are still some some big books coming out. I was thinking earlier on. You mentioned the 1980s. A book that had a lot of impact on me was Paul Kennedy's Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, published in me too. 1987. Uh, a book that um, uh, you know covers three centuries. Although the reviewers mostly were interested in what he said about post nineteen forty-five, because he was anticipating the decline of the American empire and the rise of the Pacific Century except that his Pacific century was the century of Japan, yeah. <laughs> China hardly got a look in. So that's a reminder of the dangers of And Russia organ.
2: was going to survive. as, a, as Yes, a that's right. Russia. So,
5: I mean, there's a lot of problems. But, but it was big picture stuff. It was really fascinating. And it, the last chapter grew out of what he'd written earlier. But I was thinking, I mean, I read recently Sven Beckett's book on, uh, you know, uh, on Cap, uh, uh, the, the empire of cotton, which is a really sweeping account of how cotton develops, cotton production, cotton manufacture... Uh, global in scope, emphasizing governments, emphasizing social uh, life institutions. Obviously, slavery. Um, uh, a book that leaves you know huge questions in your mind. Why didn't you cover this? Why didn't you cover that? But actually, that's often what a, 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 an important book does. It, it 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 just raises so many questions and it pulls people to encourages people in a way to pull the book apart. Uh, and that's possibly the greatest testimony to a, a book that has real influence, that it's been, you know, almost decimated by critics. Beckett's hasn't yet. Kennedy's was certainly very controversial. But, um, so I think there, are, there is scope for doing that kind of thing. But one of the problems, certainly in straight academic history now, is the REF, the Research Excellence Frameworks, is currently branded, I'm sure it will have a new brand name for the next one, um, which means, you know, things have got to be done in six-year chunks. And that is militating against the big project, a project that might take 10 years, but is really important. Uh, And I think that's an unfortunate aspect of what is, in essence, I mean, in origin, a reasonable request that there should be some accountability of public money. I I have no problem with that. I just feel that it's gone too far now in terms of bureaucratic culture. And it also does have a nimical effect on history, the production of history books, which are not like, you know, a small, well, a significant lab experiment with a, a number of, uh, assistants and four authors on the key paper, um, most of us are lone scholars, and big projects take time, and sometimes they take longer than ten, six years.
6: I mean, I'm th- an area that I'm sure will be a, a topic of, of considerable study, I thought was sort of flagged up by Geoffrey Parker's recent book on the 17th century, which he called Global Crisis, mm. and discusses crises around the globe in the 17th century as being the result of climactic change. And obviously, climate change is going to be a topic mm. that is not going to go away. Mm. And you can see it also that just um, earlier this year, there was um, a paper published arguing that climactic crisis had hit um, in the 6th and into the early 7th centuries AD, which likewise, mm. the argument was that this had a major impact on the fortunes of the Roman and the Persian empires and ultimately the rise of Islam. And I suspect that that is a field where mm. increasing interest will focus. On, and it, you know, it, it's not just about interest in, in climate change. It's also an interest in, in the concept of globalisation. Mm. Because when you live in a globalised world, it then becomes much easier to write panoramic histories that try and establish the links rather than
5: assert the difference. Yeah, like the Silk Road or something like that. Yes, so, yeah. yes I mean, I think that we, we are, in our profession, we're all influenced you know, by the the mm-hmm. larger culture in which we operate, and so, so you know the globalizing trends have had their effect on the way history is written. The interest and the concern about climate change has has produced uh, new uh, books and new posts in. You know, a climate history and sustainable history, and so
4: there was, on. There was Emmanuel Ois- Le look at uh, climate change. He did some, you yes. know, back that's back what, yes, that true. yes, so yeah. I think people have been looking at it for a while. But the, 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 I was thinking I also the
5: French, I mean, kind of French and school, didn't exactly. it, really exactly. so of global
2: warming anxiety had really yeah. kicked in. The Battle of Waterloo was won because of a Indonesian volcano, which made it that the, uh, blew up in 1840, in 1815. And two months later, um, some of the clouds made it rain in Belgium the day before the battle, thereby entirely changing the battle. And helping
5: <laughs> Did I, I don't think I really remembered that coming out so strongly in your book, Napoleon, though, Andrew. Why didn't you bring
2: that in? <laughs> but, but, but no, but you're that, quite right. I didn't <laughs> make terribly much of it. I know,
6: I know. I, I, it also I, resulted <laughs> in the... Um, the Year Without a Summer, didn't it? That's and right. Frankenstein yes, exactly. and uh, Polidori yes. writing The Vampire. So yes. it ultimately well, resulted in my it, literary right. career as well. It so long-term consequence. <laughs> so I, think,
4: I think there is something to be said about... The idea about fragmentation, though, I think there is something to challenge that uh, in that... We do now have good academic historians writing books that are accessible to a wider audience, it's not just writing for themselves. Which I think some time ago one could have said that was true. Whereas now you've got the, the like Stephen Church on King John, or who's mm. written on Thomas Wyatt, and that that I think is good and to be encouraged. My only concern is that um, that um, that whilst there are. Other people, there's still quite a lot of. In fact, I'd say there's an increasing amount of dross actually published yes. history. history. Mm. Um, obviously, it, it, there are no offenders in this room, but there are, you know, there, and that there's a sense that um, I'm glad that academics and great historians um, who you know who write for a general audience are tackling that because it seems to me that there are there's not really a way of of, char- of registering that or not registering, checking it and checking the quality of it for a lot of...
2: Well, part of that, I think you're right, and part of that is because uh, publishers don't... Uh, edit the books yeah. in the same way. Right. They, they edit our books, but they they really... Some books are published with, uh, with really minimal, if any, editing whatsoever. And then, of course, you have this great rise since 2000 uh, of uh, self-published books. And books that, to all intents and purposes, should not be self-published because they're not good enough to be published and therefore shouldn't be self-published. Um, and so few of them are of any quality, and yet they do, um, I'm sure... Uh, impinge on the on the sales of much better books that have yeah. been edited and have been uh, have gone through a process which uh, which you know all good books should go through.
4: It, I mean, it seems to me that all of us you know are committed to the idea of writing for a general audience, but that it's, it seems to me that also those books should not be, have it show any decline in in, in scholarship. Mm. That, that yeah. in, well, I th- I think
6: there's a case for saying that that um, if you're writing for a general audience, it's almost more incumbent on you to make sure that you get your facts yes. absolutely right and yes. that you're abreast of the most recent scholarly thinking. Because for many people, it will be the only taste that they have of reading about this period. So if you get it wrong, the opportunity for, I suppose, sort of polluting people's understanding of what happened is, is quite Yes, serious. I like that, Tom. The
4: burden of responsibility is all the greater. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
6: Because if you write a scholarly monograph and you get a mistake, you can be sure that um, your peers will... <laughs> Three people will point it out. <laughs> the three people who read it will but, but if you get you know if it's if, if you're if you're propagating um, sort of errors and your book is being read by lots and lots of people, then that's much
0: more serious, I think. So looking back at the past sixteen years or so, um, what history books stand out for you as being particularly important or interesting or you know personally important, I suppose?
4: I've got some for the period I work on. So for uh, the Tudors, a really important book was George Bernard's book, The King's Reformation, which actually uh, it suggested that Geoffrey Elton, who'd been saying it was all Cromwell's doing, hadn't hadn't got it quite right, and actually that Henry VIII was behind us a lot. And so this massive tome that um, George came up with has been important, even as a jumping-off point for discussion. Mm. Um, and um, a year before that, Eric Ives... Um, who often sees, saw things from a different perspective to, to George Bernard, wrote, wrote a biography of Anne Boleyn that is, is going to not going to be surpassed for quite some time, no matter how many people try. Um, uh, equally important, I suppose, in terms of um, scholarship on the Reformation, Eamon Duffy's books, particularly The Voices of Moorbath, which was a look at um, church... Uh, Account, warden's accounts and looking at the reformation in the parishes as it, through that and um, you know the extent to which there was reluctance to take down the sort of paraphernalia of uh, late medieval Catholicism has been really important but outside my direct area I was really struck by Ian Mortimer's The Time Traveller's Guides book I think they've been a really the, to medieval England to Elizabethan England I think they've been really helpful for for a popular audience getting into the past um, and then I'd I'd particularly want to mention um Faravaz dabuvalas The Origins of Sex, The First Sexual Revolution, which haven't if you haven't read it, it's really a very good read, and it's looking at um the 18th century as being the first sexual revolution, but before that does a very good look at the 16th and 17th centuries and the sort of clamp down on um, sexuality and morality during that period of time. I mean, there's loads of others on convention. Do you get are...
5: a commission on these, by the way? No, no, I should try that. Yeah. Well, then... I
4: should try that, yes. Well,
5: yeah, I suppose I, 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 I've I, got a couple that I was thinking of and more less in my own specialty but more in terms of, of particular impact. Mm. Uh, you know, history books that actually got out to a much wider segment of the population. I think one that has had one that had an enormous impact is uh, Ian McGregor's History of the World in A Hundred Objects. Yes. yes. Uh, which was, as you know, it was commissioned by the BBC, by Mark Damazer who was controller radio 4. McGregor was, um, Neil McGregor was in charge of the British Museum. And the the success of it, I think, is measured just by the number of imitations there are. You know, you can go into airport bookshops and it's, you know, the something of in 10 objects or 10 or 100 or whatever it is. The idea that you can sum everything up in a few vignettes are... which in the hands of somebody like McGregor, I think, can be done very well, and in the hands of a rather second-rate emulator can be really crass and, of course, rather dangerous that somehow everything is encapsulating these small things. But that seems to me to have been really successful and, of course, has um, you know, done well as a, a radio series and as a book, and that, I think, has been very important.
2: And there are some smaller ones from, from periods before. Um, Anne Somerset, The Affair of the Poisons rather you you wanted to look at smaller, the sort of uh, 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 lost books, which uh, nonetheless really. uh, What I think that book um, did was uh, was that was that was brilliant was to um, uh, to take seriously gossip and rumour from the period, the ballads, the 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 the, um, the sort of throwaway lines, the jokes, all those sort of things that might. Below the surface actually means something serious, but uh, which some historians might, you know, not take seriously because they were throwaway lines. I think that was a, a, a nice approach to uh, to history. Um, and uh, and there was another one who I that I get noted that um, oh yes, uh, Lisa Jardine's book on sixteen eighty eight. The uh, the idea that it was a, a Dutch invasion rather than a British inviting the Dutch over it was highly argumentative. I didn't agree with it ultimately, but boy, was it a great read for sheer polemical, sustained, intelligent polemical discussion. Uh, I uh, I thought that I think I mean, she's a tremendous and huge and terrible loss to the mm, to the yeah. to the trade really, isn't she?
6: Well, I guess if specifically twenty first century histories, histories that could really only have been written in recent period. I I would nominate um, Geoffrey Parker's Global Crisis, which seems to me absolutely archetypally 21st century book. And also, whether it was actually written before the 21st century or not, I can't remember. But John Darwin's After Tamburlaine, The Global History of Empire Since 1405, which looks at the modern experience of imperialism, not from the perspective of the seas, which europeans took but from central asia and it provided a sort of a fascinating alternative perspective which is one that um, I, I i'm sure will become increasingly significant um, as central asia becomes ever mm. more significant um, The book I read that most revolutionised my understanding of European history um, was a book called uh, Origins of the European Economy by Michael McCormack, who's a specialist in late antiquity. He'd written about the the mutation of the Roman triumph in Christian Byzantium. But this book was about how um, Europe, Dark Ages Europe, if we're allowed to call it that, emerged from the economic despond that the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West had left it as a result of the slave trade, the trading in slaves to the much richer Muslim powers of North Africa and Sicily, and how this then provided the flow of gold that enabled Europe in the early to high Middle Ages to take off. And I found it absolutely Jaw-dropping. Um, and on the topic of Islam, I think that um, the great historiographical development over the past 30 years, really, but it's really started quickening over the past 10, is the application of methodologies that people would, would, would not think twice about applied to any other ancient civilization, to the origins of Islam and the emergence of the caliphate. And in that context, um, a book called Death of a Prophet by Stephen J. Shoemaker seems to me to stand out, came out recently. Uh, Shoemaker, is uh, his background is um, in the study of the Bible. So he's um, absolutely from that school of biblical criticism. And he applies those methodologies to the early stories that are told about Muhammad. Um, in almost all of which, Muhammad is described as leading the invasion of the Holy Land, whereas according to Muslim tradition, he's dead before that happens. And he teases out what might be going on. doesn't actually say what he thinks happened because he doesn't think we can know what happened, but he demonstrates how contingent our understanding of early Islam is and the chasm that separates the traditions that are told by Muslims and have been for hundreds of years, Um, and what the most contemporary and cutting-edge perspectives of contemporary historiography can provide on that. And I think that for all kinds of obvious reasons, it's simultaneously the most sensitive, Mm -hmm. but also the most thrilling area of historical research of any that I can think of.
5: But that sounds like it's almost doing now what was done for the uh, origins of Christianity in the middle of the 19th century through source criticism and so on. Yes, it it is.
0: Um, if we were to come back here in another 16 years' time, how, how different do you think the field of history books, history publishing, would be?
6: Well, I I, I think that... Um, in a way, I'll, I'll answer that question by, by looking backwards, which is that I think that up until 1989, there was a sense in which history that mattered began with the French Revolution, and that... What mattered was the Russian Revolution, the experience of fascism, the division of the world into rival power blocks, and the Cold War had served in a sense to put earlier periods of history and their ability to infect the present, if you like, into a deep freeze. And what happened with the end of the Cold War was that all kinds of ancient identities and indeed ancient hatreds began to emerge out of the permafrost. And I think that what you see now, what is it, 27 years on, is history coming and emerging from all different kinds of places? So, you know, who would have thought back in 1989 that possibly the most significant period for understanding current geopolitics would be the seventh and eighth centuries in the Middle East, mm-hmm. the divisions between Shia and, and, and Sunni? Um, looking at, at Britain. I mean, I, it, it's a book that's outside the, the, the purlieu of, 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 of when BBC History be, began being published, but Linda Colley's Britons Britain. served to flag up what was going to come, what, you know, what, the, the, the firestorm of debate about British identity that has indeed engulfed us. And I'm guessing that over the next 15 years, all kinds of crises will blow up, both within Britain... And in the broader world that have their roots, possibly in periods of history that we can't yet know will be generating them. But I think that we will find that there are all kinds of books that, in Barbara Tuckman's phrases, are, are, are distant mirrors.
2: I gave a speech to school this morning, and one of the questions I got asked was um, if the um, roads must fall campaign goes on to its logical um, conclusion. Will we be pulling down statues of Winston Churchill the racist? And I thought for a moment and uh, and thought, yeah, maybe we might be. Who's to say in 100 years time if uh, racism becomes the key distinguishing factor for good versus evil uh, in society, then maybe, even though, of course, Churchill was instrumental in destroying a far worse um, racism, an actual exterminationist racism, nonetheless, it will be impossible to present him as a positive figure because of his, uh, because of his racism. And so it strikes me that um, we, just as, I mean, we equally might all be judged on uh, on. Why on earth we allowed children to uh, use uh, mobile phones? We just cannot tell what it's going to be like any more than in in at the year 1900, everybody would think that race was the key um, was the key a key determinant in uh, in good versus evil. So um, I think the the uh, trick will be to continue to write as good history as we possibly can to avoid the out of the darkness looms stuff. Never to write anything that uh, isn't uh, that we don't believe to be true. To stick to the uh, to the um, thing that we can know are good according to our own uh, present-day precepts and just let the future take care of itself.
4: I I think there's going to, hopefully, I want some more hope perhaps than no, but I think there's going to be integration of... um, So, for example, I would... I would hope and expect that there won't be such a thing as women's history, but that histories will take into account mm. uh, the perspectives of women or perspectives of um, um, uh, ethnic minorities, or the, so that the, these things will be more integrated into the mainstream. You're that, seen that, yes, you are already saying that, Yes, absolutely. And, um, and that includes also different approaches to history. So um, I think, for example, material culture is increasingly... It, actually, Neil MacGregor's mm. Hi- mm. History it's of the ma- World 100 started material, that kind yeah, of right, idea yeah. about material mm. culture. Culture being important in the telling of mm. history which um, more I mean in some ways it already ha- always had been for archaeologists but that do not think of this as a separate silo um, and I think that actually also the other thing is books are going to be more beautiful because they have to be in order to confront the the digital threat so that it books will become have to be desirable as objects for coffee tables and for shelves as much as anything else.
5: So you're confident about the continued existence of the book?
4: Yes, very much so, but only as as an object of desire in itself.
5: It speaks to the 16th century (laughs) historian.
2: Not (laughs) necessary
5: communication.
2: Sorry, to pass in. Do we think we're going to get to the history book which, um, when I write... uh, then on the 7th of December 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. The words Pearl Harbor will have a line under them and you'll be able to click on or press that and see the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Well, this is what Dan Soto is a lot about. Yeah. Not, not, not for a fair while. Right.
6: Not okay. for a fair while. I mean, there are all kinds of discussions among publishers to try that. and do that, but yeah. as yet it's...
4: But in terms of thinking about things like apps, I mean, Dan Snow has makes a strong case about the importance of apps as layering the information one could get in a book and footage and um, maps and tables and all the rest of it. Um, I don't think it's going to supplant, but I think it will um, you know, also come alongside beautiful books in the future.
0: Do you have any particular uh, heroes from the world of history publishing that you'd like to mention very briefly... And do you have any advice to people who might be interested in getting involved in this kind of field?
2: Um, my hero was George Weidenfeld, died earlier this year, published the first of my 10, um, uh, 10 of my first books. A great friend, of course, but also a giant in the in the field. Somebody who was gutsy. He published Lolita. He published Albert Speer um, as a Jew. And uh, somebody who was uh, also um, a true bibliophile in that he was only happy when he was surrounded by books.
6: Well, I suppose I should nominate the two writers who were- distinctive moments in my life influenced me and made me want to write history. The first I've, again, already mentioned is Barbara Tuckman, whose book, a Distant Mirror, about the 14th century. Medievalists have all kinds of problems with it, I now know, but I don't care because it, <laughs> I read it about 20 times, I should think, and it made me think this is what I want to do. Um, and the other person is Peter Green, who's a classicist, uh, whose book, From um, Alexander to Actium, I picked up on the public shelves at, at Kensington Library, and it totally reignited my fascination with classical history and made me think that's what I want to do. So those two I would nominate. And the advice, obviously, would be, write what you're interested about. Don't second-guess the market.
4: Um, my heroes would be uh, Emmanuel Le, Le, Le Um Monteu, I basically sort of carry around and read all the time. I mean, I think if I could ever write like that, I should be, you know half as well I should be I'm tremendously pleased with myself and so that has really shaped how I approach history as has Natalie Zeman Davis's work um, and so between them they sort of add up to what I want to be when I'm grown up you know I, just, I think they're amazing and um, and so that those are my two and in terms of advice I suppose the best writing comes from reading lots. So just read lots and lots and lots outside Mm. the period you're interested Mm. in as well as the period you're interested in and get as broad a a vision as possible.
5: Well, a book that made a huge impact on me at an early stage was uh, by a man called Christopher Thorne, uh, with an E, who was... Allies of a Kind. Allies of a Kind, which was about the Pacific War, seen from the vantage point of... As many of the belligerents as possible. So Britain, America, China, Japan, um, French. Um, So it was holistic international history and it was also permeated with a strong sense of culture as well, of the interaction of cultures. And I think those those two things affected me quite deeply. And I would add to that a PS that talking about that a year or so ago at a conference at UCL, University College London, I was struck, uh, to a group of international I was struck by the fact that most of them had never heard of the man. He died in the, uh, you know, for his time in the, I suppose, 1990s. But it reminded me, underlined for me, the way in which book lists now and the kind of books that students are aware of are very present-centred, not least because you know, in the digital age it's really a case of click-click, what do I get, you know, and if it doesn't come up, if it's not digital, you're not interested. And I think that's a serious problem. There are some Classics of earlier periods that people could read with 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 benefit, and certainly his is a book I still think you know could be read with profit. Um, advice, yeah, I mean I'm I'm lucky. I'm doing a job that is about the only job in the world I could do. I love doing it, uh, and I also but I also do genuinely enjoy the mix of writing and and teaching, and I've got a lot out of that. I mean, a book like Britannia Overruled, I wrote about British foreign policy, drew directly out of teaching. Um, uh, You know, same with um, One World Divisible. The other thing I think I have gained, and I would pass on to people, is I gained an awful lot from the chance to do some television and radio um, because it really forces one to be... Clear on what one is trying to say and uh, simplify, not I think in a really crass sense, but really just say, okay, in the end, you know, on the one hand this, on the one hand that, what is one saying? And say it in ways that are reasonably succinct, reasonably jargon free. Don't condescend, so if there is something complicated, try and explain it, but force yourself to explain it first. I mean, you try and work out the gold standard in three sentences. It's not easy, but you have to make that sort of effort. And I think that has been hugely useful to me. And I'm struck with quite a lot, I mean, certainly now talking to younger scholars in particular, encouraging them to get out of the the sort of, the, if you like, the very academic mindset of how you write history and say, look, this is actually part of our public culture, talk to people. There's a huge appetite out there. Communicate with them. They want to hear about it if you write it in the right kind of way. And you are not selling yourself short if you do that well. Mm. And social media has added
6: to that yeah, as well. Absolutely. I mean, the challenge of explaining the gold standard in
5: 140 characters
6: mm, yes, that that's is true. Pretty, yes, yes. pretty considerable.
2: It was Gore Vidal who said never turn down the opportunity to have sex or appear on television. <laughs>
6: Both at once. <laughs> <laughs> on Channel
3: 5.
4: You know? <laughs> yes, I think that's it.
3: That was Matt Elton in conversation with Susanna Lipscomb, Tom Holland, David Reynolds and Andrew Roberts. You can read more from this interview in our June issue, which is on sale now. Also in this month's edition, there are articles on Operation Barbarossa, The Private Lives of the Tudors... Roman Britain, and a medieval civil war, among other things. You can get hold of our June issue now in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And three of our panel, David Reynolds, Susanna Lipscomb and Tom Holland, will be among the speakers at this year's History Weekend events, tickets for which are now on sale. The weekends this year will be taking place in Winchester from the 7th to 9th of October and then York from the 18th to 20th of November. Head to HistoryWeekend.com for full details of the lineup and to purchase tickets.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
3: now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma Mason.
7: A bone fragment of the murdered Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Beckett, has gone on display in England as part of a week-long pilgrimage in London and Kent. The bone is thought to be from the elbow of St Thomas, who was murdered in Canterbury Cathedral in 1170 after falling out with Henry II when it became clear that Beckett would stand up for the church in its disagreements with the king. It is the first time the bone has been displayed in England since it was taken to Hungary 800 years ago. The pilgrimage started earlier this week with a Holy Mass at Westminster Cathedral in London and the fragment will be reunited with another fragment said to be from Thomas Beckett's skull, normally kept at Stonyhurst College in Lancashire. Becket was murdered by four knights at Canterbury Cathedral at dusk on the evening of the 29th of December 1170. In other news, archaeologists are exploring the remains of a medieval chapel that, according to legend, was visited by King Arthur. Excavations at Beckerley Chapel near Glastonbury Somerset, which was last excavated in 1967-8, aim to accurately date the remains of an early Christian chapel. The trenches will then be filled in and the position of the chapel will be marked on the ground in the field, BBC News reports. King Arthur is said to have seen a vision of Mary Magdalene and the baby Jesus at the chapel. Archaeologist Dr Richard Brunning from the South West Heritage Trust said, Previous excavations in the 1960s suggested that a Saxon monastery may have been present on the site before it became a chapel. The present research aims to get new scientific data samples to precisely date the monastic cemetery for the first time. Meanwhile, a £10 million campaign has been launched to save the Armada portrait of Elizabeth I, which is to be sold for the first time in more than 400 years. Once owned by Sir Francis Drake, the image is considered to be one of the most important in English history. For generations, the image has been privately held by the Tyrwhitt drake family, but it is now up for sale. The Art Fund and Royal Museums Greenwich have launched a fundraising campaign to save the image for the nation. They must raise £10 million in the next two months to secure the portrait. If the money is not raised, the portrait will be offered for sale worldwide and may end up hidden in another private collection, according to the Telegraph report. The Art Fund has already pledged £1 million towards the total, while Royal Museums Greenwich has offered £400,000, its entire annual acquisitions budget. The image, which commemorates the failed invasion of England by the Spanish Armada in the summer of 1588, is one of three Armada portraits. It is considered the most significant of the three due to its direct link with sea captain Sir Francis Drake.
3: One of the regular sections within the magazine is Our First World War, which charts the progress of that conflict a hundred years ago through the words of those who lived and fought through it. We've also been including accompanying audio clips within the podcast. And this month, we've come to May 1916. And here, speaking to the Imperial War Museum, is William Holbrook describing a sad incident of desertion.
8: I had an case of desertion, but <coughs> his name was Roberts. And he's a fellow, I knew very, very well. He landed, they all Londoners in the future, most of them. And I <coughs> knew very, very well. And uh, he's a fellow that would, you never hesitate to go in any raid. Or things like. In fact, he, i meant the, the great in front of the uh, the German lines. Entire listen to their conversation and try to find how many men they've entrenched, You know by the number of talk talking in that he come back there. You do that. Well, uh, this fellow uh, he, he couldn't. Uh, if there's any French girl got make, uh, if any French girl behind the line, he'd get with her and, and go away and desert with her. You know, that's uh, leave the front line and be away for the quarter, through months, and he'd call, What has happened to at Different times, Roberts. <clears throat> now, I remember one, the last time, well, the time before last he got caught, He's put in the tent as a guard. He had to guard him, and <laughs> we let him out, you know, because he had really liked him. And it was some months, he got caught again in the south of France. Well, when did to get caught? He was trying court martial and sentenced to death, Roberts was. I and mean, then in the morning, of course, he was all the, the, the troops were angry about you know, upset about because they all liked him. Well, of course, the only thing that was in his fight was that a lot of the troops were that knew him, had gone, died, wounded, and away. So, I mean, most of them then, for months, of all new. Anyway, he came, <coughs> and I was at a place, place called Renning, Renning House. That's on the um, Ebury front, between Poplar Ring and Ebury, and <coughs> before, before then. And um, one morning, we was had of rest, and we were in some old barns, and anything else, and rest during the time up the line, before those rest, and we called out one morning, <coughs> early, in fact, I don't know what reason, called out got this. One. When we got there was Roberts, sitting on, sitting on a chair. Uh, and we go. going what's this? It's all wrong. And they put, picked out six men, I think six men. And the, the general, General Potter, he read out a statement. He said, the man, I always remember his words. He said, <coughs> the man you're going to watch has been sentenced to death. He said, but his father, he's, a, he's, not, he's not a coward. He's a very brave man. He said, but, but power beyond, my, my, beyond my powers, I can't do anything about it. And so he said, the sentence had to be carried out. The uh, six men, and they placed an envelope over Robert's heart there, He said, I don't want to, they put, put a bandage on his head. He said, I don't want to bandage around my head. He said, I'd sooner die with a British than the German, he said. And they pulled out six men and he was executed.
3: That was William Holbrook. You can read more from our First World War each month in BBC History magazine. OK, so that's almost it for this week, but do listen in next time when we'll be talking about the private lives of the Tudors and the 13th century civil war. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.